thank you all so much for coming tonight. Um, I want to start off by saying, even though this may seem like it's posturing as an intellectual conversation, it's actually a party. We are here to celebrate. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about what we're celebrating before we dive into the conversation and the reading. Um, and I want to say some thank yous to get started. Um, so a little over a year ago, I had the idea with some alumni and my husband um, that it would be really great to start a little poetry publishing press at St. Vincent. Um, and this would be a teaching press. Um, and by teaching press, I had the idea that I would teach students about what it would mean to take a book from you know, the notebook that it might live in, or in our case, um, the notebook that it might live in across the continent um, into a book. But in fact, it ended up being a learning experience very much for me. Um, it was a teaching press that I think ironically is te has been teaching me quite a lot. Um, so I have many people to thank for um, you know, how we got from the idea um, of beginning this little crazy venture um, to hold up, please, the book, um, to our first full-length book, um, which has been nationally distributed, um, which is being reviewed and read um, far beyond the campus of St. Vincent. Um, I want to thank the alumni who have worked on the press, um, Bridget Fertile. I want to thank you. I want to thank um, current students, Michaela and Irina and Jessica Ackerman, if you were here, and um, Christian Crowley, who worked with us last semester. Um, Paige, thank you so much. Um, we've had a number of students involved directly with everything from um, writing um, book descriptions to writing grant applications to you know, every sort of imp imaginable aspect of this, flyers, um, it's really what I've learned is just how many pieces there are um, in the small press publishing process. Um, so I especially want to thank the translator and poet Janine Peters, who is here to celebrate the book with us, but also who took the risk of working with a very new press and um, translating a book that we asked her to translate, which isn't the way it's always done. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy that you're here. Um, and I'll start off by just telling everybody a little bit about the book. I'll read the book description and Janine's bio, and then she's going to read just maybe a couple minutes from the book. And then we're going to just have a little Q&A about what the press really is. So this is a press that publishes work in translation into English. The translators are recognized translators of poetry from Spanish from all over. Um, Janine is one wonderful example. What separates Eulalia Books from other presses that publish work in translation is that we exclusively publish work that's never by authors who have never before had their work published in English. So the idea is that we're bringing authors for the very first time into English and enabling conversations that otherwise aren't happening. Um, this often means bringing in women writers who often are overlooked in translation writers from geographically ignored regions of Latin America, 
um, writers of various um, identities that often get overlooked. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit about that aspect, that dimension of this um, in our conversation. Um, so Janine Marie Peters is the author of three poetry chapbooks and the translator of several poets from Uruguay, including the sensational poet Morosa de Giorgio. Her first full-length poetry collection, Things Seen and Unseen, was published by Mosaic Press in 2019. She lives in Iowa and teaches at the University of Dubuque. And this book that she translated for us, Echo of the Park, Romina Freshi's Echo of the Park is a philosophical long poem that surveys made spaces, both elevated and debased. In a dialogue with First Dream by Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, Freshi captures fleeting states of grace, such as ecstasy and bliss, and the ensuing gravitational pull of urban life's imperfect terrain. All urban spaces are interior and exterior, private and public, confining and freeing. Ultimately, the park and the parkified speech of the poem, parkified is a word that Freshy invents, are sites of mourning. Can a former site of political violence be converted into a public green space? Janine Marie Peters's nuanced translation presents Romina Freshi as one of the most singular and startling voices in contemporary Argentine poetry. <coughs> so I want to invite you to read a little bit anywhere before we start talking. I'm going to stand up because I just want to see everyone. <laughs> no hay paraíso en la tierra. Sus maravillas inmensas son hostiles. Y en lucha con ellas gastamos fuerza, fe y voluntad. Sí, hay paz y éxtasis. Provienen, sin embargo, del temporal, crisis de las condiciones pactadas. Destructor más creador de los mundos, manjares lejanos, grandezas efímeras, deleterias, funestas de la tierra. There is no heaven on earth. Its marvels immense are hostile, and fighting them costs us strength, faith, and will. Sure, there are peace and ecstasy. They come, nevertheless, from the tempest, crisis of terms and conditions, most creative destroyer of worlds, precarious feasts, fleeting grandeur, injurious funereal ones of the earth. The willow touches the earth and touched my body with its flutter, a scent that desire, that body, small and dead, of the one who was my friend. Both free, bird, human, both, both things at the same time. When we touched, death also touched us, like an omen, something no one gives any credit to. It's an ache that fades, trapped in the machine of what needs to be done to function. And it never digests. That absence has feathers. It doesn't process this after a miraculous encounter in the gravel of the ordinary. Joy at seeing you, at having known you, 
Then there's a hole with no insides that translates all I can get into wind, into dust, into nonsense. Thank you. I'm so glad that you read the Spanish first. Um, because I think that the hardest thing has been, um, we have a translation class at St. Vincent, but the hardest thing for me has been to explain to students who don't have a lot of experience with translation, um, you know, what we're doing here. Um, and so I think a lot of students, you know, we read works in translation, we read the classics in translation, but we don't really, um, unless we're taught, we don't really know what translation entails and how to appreciate a translation as a translation. So do you have any things um, that you tell readers of translations, new readers of translations, or is there anything that you would like readers of your translations to know about the process, about the art? Well, I think it's precisely that. By the way, I feel like I'm very loud. Is this sound okay? I'm Right. Echo of the park. <laughs> so I think you just said there the art of translation, and that's the number one thing. Translation is an art. So not everyone realizes that there's this whole idea. Is it Moody or somebody else of the invisible translator? Just the invis this, yeah, the invisibility this, of the translator. This idea that translators are just that, invisible, not really seen. They're very quick to be blamed, I know, because I assign a lot of literature <laughs> in translation to my students. And if ever we read something that's difficult or complex, they say, I wonder if it's the translation. So <laughs> translation mm -hmm. is often, and, and it's, it's strange because there are different schools of thought on translation. So when I started, I was advised to really make the text sound like English, to use very Anglo-Saxon sounding words wherever possible. And then, with the same author, I was working on a poet from Uruguay called Marosa Di Giorgio, I got completely contradictory advice from someone else saying, no, here is a chance to challenge the global dominance of English by really highlighting the fact that this is a translation. I think it was around the word uh, mariposas nocturnas, which are moths, and I translated them as that. But this, this person who was advising me said, why not call them nocturnal butterflies and just stay close to each word and highlight the yep. differences between the languages. Mm -hmm. So, you know, here I was starting out at age 22, 23, with all this contradictory advice, right? But, I mean, that's sort of, the thing that I'd like people to know is that it is an art form. If I were to give all of you in this room a text and say translate it, and it was from a language that you all happen to know, you would get every single person would come up with something different. You know, it's not, you can't just type it into Google and, right? Like, I mean, Google has its place, but not this, right? Yeah. So that's the main thing that I would want people to know, that it is, it is an art. And I think that is what is nice, especially with poetry, when we can have a bilingual version and people that do happen to know both languages can look back and forth from one to the other. I like it even if I don't know the original language. I like to just look back, see word order, structure, things like that. 
and celebrate the difference, celebrate the departure. Um, yeah, I think that you know what we often hear, and this sounds like the experience of your students, is um, an emphasis on this idea of faithfulness, right? Which is um, probably the most dominant idea in the ethical dimension of translation, that the translation needs to be faithful um, with all the moral weight of that um, to the original. Um, and I think a lot of translators in our camp um, who celebrate difference and celebrate departures that are creatively necessary um, need to think about faithfulness and what it means in a different way. Or what, is, what can faithfulness be beyond just this idea, a very limiting idea of accuracy? Um, and I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. What can faithfulness, what is faithfulness to you? Um, and what does it look like? Um, beyond maybe that traditional idea of the faithful translation as the accurate translation as if that existed. Yeah, I mean, I really like the word faithfulness. So we're in a Catholic college. <laughs> is, faithfulness, is it one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit or the gifts of the Holy Spirit? I can't Someone remember. must know this in this well, audience. Someone knows. I'm looking at Father it's, Rene. <laughs> Father Wolfston? Something. <laughs> something to do with the Holy Spirit, right? So, but it's sort of you know, but, but I once read something, a more negative connotation of faithfulness is, you know, think of the trope of, in a marriage or in a relationship, infidelity, right? It's like the worst thing that you can commit, right? And it's, at least in today's society. And so I was reading something about that, that it's often associated with women especially, like the idea of infidelity and the expectation of faithfulness. And translation has often been gendered as a kind of feminine endeavor, which, you know, is, is interesting because, I mean, there are many, the, the first translators that I most admired getting into this were, were male, but it's sort of seen as I think it's sort of seen as like, oh, the original text is the main thing, and the and the translation serves it in some way, or in yeah, some way and, yeah. yeah, is and married to it in some way. In the patriarchal yep. society, right? Like that's what women are expected to do, and so in that sense, it's it can be problematic. It can be it can be complicated, but I prefer to think of faithfulness in more of the religious, spiritual sense of faith and having faith that translation is possible, mm. you know, because, yeah, um, my way of translating does tend to be quite close to the text. I look up, I look up every word almost. I mean, I look up words that I know sometimes and look at many different different options. When I started out, I always used a physical dictionary. Now I use various online resources as well. But I, I use the Sora, you know, all that kind of all that yeah. kind of stuff, as well as my own intuitions, as well as asking friends who are native speakers or from that culture. And it's never, I mean, it's never going to be a replication of the original work. It's going to be its own work, but for me, that is what is so exciting, is just, and that's where this, for me, this idea of faith comes, just the idea of reading something. Yeah. Um, and it was the literary theorist and philosopher Spivak who said that translation is the most intimate act of reading 
So just this belief that something can be carried into another language, but it won't be the same, it'll be new, but that doesn't mean it has to be lesser or, you know, it doesn't have to be less than the, the original. Right. The idea that, you know, even though translation is impossible, right, because there are always differences that are going to prevail, um, whether it's even just the sound of the language, the idea, well, let's have faith that the miracle can happen. <laughs> let's have faith that something magical can come of this, um, that some creative work can be made. This has a lot to do with this idea that I noticed in an interview I read last week um, with Aaron Aji, who said, he's a translator in Iowa, and he said that he wants to get past the idea of faithfulness as the faithful product, the faithful um, accurate text, but the faithful effort. And that seems to be what you're describing with sitting with all these dictionaries and reading intimately and believing in the possibility of the translation, the faithful effort. Um, that it's not like, let's just go crazy and write our own thing. It's like, let's read and strain our eyes and struggle and love this text. Is that sort of... Yes, does that, exactly. So or I, is it more joyful for you? Well, <laughs> I'm describing well, it in a very painful well, way. That's a, that depends on the text. So I will say that really depends on the text. This one was definitely a labor of love, but it was a labor. It was love. a labor. And I have to say, and I'm not just saying this, really Michelle's name should be on the cover along with mine because she worked very closely on this with me and also the author herself yeah. worked very closely. So it was, and um, Roman helped as well. So it was yep. really a team, team effort. It was very much a collaboration. But an example of what you're talking about, about the faithful effort, I'm just going to give a quick example from the text. Oh, good. So, El Eden no duro, yo lo sabía. Pero igual trepaba el aire que hoy trepana. Mm -hmm. So we, how many times do we go back? <laughs> As you're saying this, my mind is going, <laughs> this is a passage. didn't last. I knew it, but even so, I climbed the air that now cleaves me. So mm. in Spanish, it's trepaba el aire que hoy Trepana. And that is not, climb the air that now cleaves me. That is not a literal, like how close would you say in meaning are those two? Trepana um, is such a weird word. It's, they're not yeah. very close. No. Um, but I think there, there's a good example of when we had to be faithful. Um, the translation has to be faithful to the sound trepar, trepana. Um, what do we have in English that can do the same thing, the same echo, this is a book of sounds. You know, this is a book where sound has its own dimension of meaning. How can we create that echo, um, which is equally as important as what it's saying, with words that mean more or less the same thing? Um, it's impossible, right? So, so that was one of our struggles, to find sounds as well as meanings, and that's a good example of of that. We have we had examples of that all through the book. Let's talk about the book now. Um, and actually, you're reminding me of it. We're talking about echoes. In Spanish, um, echo is the same as, same spelling as eco. Um, and this is very much a book of, um, echo is eco. So it's the same as eco. 
like um, ecological park or and this is a book very much of, of eco-poetics, what's called eco-poetics, and that it challenges the hierarchy of humankind over the rest of the natural world. Um, and I'm curious about your thoughts on what this book has to bring to our conversation here in the United States. This is a, a very, you know, this is a, a, a look at global catastrophe or maybe just the relationship of man and the effects of man on the natural environment that's coming from another hemisphere, um, that's coming from the global south. And so I wonder if you, you were thinking about that or if you have been thinking about that, especially in these days with um, the conversations at the UN. Yeah, so, we're living in scary times. I don't know how many of you saw uh, Greta Thunberg's speech to the UN, which is so impassioned and such a call for action. And you know, it's really, it, it's tough to listen to this, especially as an older person who was around the age that you are when, when she was born and now feeling responsible with, along with so many for creating this global mess that we're in, and it really is global. Every single day I read something besides the Amazon fires burning. I read that billions of birds in North America have disappeared, and I see it from the time I was a child to now, the difference. Um, I've read that in Indonesia there are more birds in cages than there are out in the wild, which is a disturbing thought. So this is happening all over the world, and I think I started to notice it traveling. I, I spent, right after graduating from college, I spent a few years traveling, working in different countries, learning Spanish. I had studied it before, um, but learning it more thoroughly. And just already then, like sort of mid-2000s, everybody was talking about this, and how the climate was changing, how the weather was changing. And in the context of Buenos Aires, it's interesting that it's called Echo of the Park. Um, Buenos Aires is a city that does not have a lot of green spaces, that does yeah. not have a lot of parks. It's very, very urban. Yeah. The author says that part of her impetus and her inspiration for reading or for um, writing this in addition to the dialogue with the great Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz which runs through this, the famous Mexican Catholic sister who is one of the canonical writers of the, of the Spanish language, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, is, you know, that's, that's really where she's starting, but also her personal experience of taking care of a wild bird in her home that had been injured, and she a pigeon. In. Yep. Um, and which I'm interrupting you because I have this image of her talking about um, ha having the pigeon in the playing in the bathtub, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, just having it living in the bathtub much of the day, um, but healing from an injury. Yeah, so she's a real lover of nature, but what this book really is about is, you know, the, I read the very first lines for you, there is no heaven on earth. So this is a difficult book in the sense of the language, it's very conceptual, 
it's not a narrative piece. In a, I mean, it is, but isn't, right? It's, it's very, there's a lot of open, it's, a lot of it is very much open to interpretation, but it's full of images of, of the natural world. But the main point is there is this, there is no real division between the natural and the human-made world. So I'm just reading a little excerpt here. To inhabit then, imperfect terrain, to parkify it, constantly creating the patina that makes a life possible there. Constantly life means to seal that patina and there where we fail to die and watch die. Hey, maybe the civil can't be civil, civilized. There's no civilization that doesn't spread its hypocritical cover over all the death that holds up the crumbling fortress. So, pretty intense material here, but it just seems to be, for me, it really speaks to our desire to be in a pleasant environment, you know, to have non-human nature close to us, but at the same time, we're constantly affecting it and changing it. That really, there's, there's no wilderness left on Earth, you know? It's pretty much everything is touched by human activity today, for better or for worse. And I think that's what a lot of this book is coming out of and speaking to. It would be hard to read this book sitting in a park um, enjoying the, be the pastoral beauty of a park. I mean, she talks about parkifying. Uh, how do you understand, I mean, is, that's the idea, right? That, you know, we go in, we bulldoze everything, we lay a bunch of cement, then we put out some pots and we parkify it by having um, at least the appearance of nature around us, though. Even grass, I mean, it's, it's just the, where, I, where I teach, the quad was completely bulldozed and they decided to redo it. They put new sod, they put new grass, perfectly green grass, which is the mark of death, you know, if you don't have clover and wildflowers in your grass, it's really a, a dead zone, basically. But yeah, we very much, we create these, these spaces, especially in, in an urban setting, they're very much human-made. And even bigger parks, even national parks, um, state parks, as wonderful as they are, they are there because humans have designated them to be there and they're human maintained, right? But it goes the other way too. We're not in control of things as much as we may think we are, right? Anyone who's been startled in your bathroom by a centipede late at night knows that, right? Like, it's just... Well, this is the difference. I think you're getting at really the difference in tone and in purpose um, of this book from the one from which it emerged, the, the, the dream um, by Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz in the 17th century. Um, her poem was a long pastoral poem. Um, she's an ecstatic poet. She's having a, a, an experience of connection with the natural world or with, with the spiritual world through the natural world. And I think in this poem, um, is that possible? Um, that kind of, um, I think that it might not be possible anymore. That's the question that she's asking. That's the, 
that's certainly the desire. There's this yearning for the connection. So in the part that I read at the beginning, both free, ascent that desire, that body small and dead of the one who was my friend, both free, bird, human, both, both things at the same time. Mm -hmm. That particular section comes out of her experience, I believe, of caring for the pigeon. And the idea is in that moment, the bird becomes a human and the human becomes a bird. It's this desire, it's just this fantasy of connection between the human and the animal. Um, There's another point where she talks about the impossible kiss between lips and a beak. So, you know, just this desire to really want to, I mean, why is it that people keep birds in cages in their homes? How many of you have a pet? Raise your hands if like you grew up with some kind of pet, a cat, a dog, anything, a gerbil, right? Like, you know, most people want to, we have this desire to connect with, with nature, with nature, and I put that, you know, in, scare quotes because we're we're nature we're part of we are nature we are nature and we don't we forget that and that's sort of why we somehow think we have license to destroy the rest of nature i guess or to use it that misinterpretation of of the of the creation stories i think if i can say that that might cause some controversy but you know (laughs) Laudatio see Pope Francis is trying to get us back on the right track, I think, of caring for our home rather than destroying it. So. I want to leave time for you to read um, from the book, so I'm going to switch to my last question, sadly, um, which is that your book has recently come out, Things Seen and Unseen, which is a nod to the Nicene Creed. Um, and the title of that book, Things Seen and Unseen, got me thinking a great deal about translation. I thought, oh, that's a title about translation because, of course, there are things in a translated work that go very seen, and there's a whole lot under the surface that's unseen, that goes unseen. Um, And as I was thinking about that, I don't know if you were actually thinking about translation at all when, when you titled your book, but it got me thinking about the connection between your Catholic faith and how you imagine your job as a translator. Um, and I wonder if you could speak to that. It's nice to be in a setting where I can speak to that because sometimes it feels like an odd combination of being a translator of um, sort of unusual experimental poetry and identifying as a practicing Catholic. So. Yeah, the idea of things seen and unseen, or in the more recent translation of the Roman Missal, which is probably the one that you know, things visible and invisible, but I took the the old one. And for my own book, I just took that as the title, because for some reason that phrase always intrigued me, this idea of believing in things seen and unseen. And one way of that is sort of just this idea that there is some kind of spiritual or supernatural reality beyond or within what we can immediately see. Another way of looking at it is just things that are seen and unseen within, within this material realm. The, you know, people who are unseen, realities, truths mm-hmm. that are unseen. 
Um, the third world, I have to interrupt you, the third yeah. world experience of living in an urban setting in a third world is unseen in our discussions about climate that are happening very much about the United States and Europe and China. You know, we're not really looking at, um, a, at that whole part of the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, people are looking at Brazil now, and it's right. very, <laughs> but it's very interesting, this debate, if it can be called that, of does the Amazon belong to the whole world or does mm -hmm. it belong to one nation? And if it does belong to one nation, then this idea to chop it down, to turn it into money, I guess. But, but I mean, the whole world has been doing that already for, for ages now. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that is, that's, that's definitely an unseen experience. Part of my mission as a translator is to bring voices that are unheard and poets who are unseen into this culture. Although, I mean, to be really frank, sometimes I feel, a lot of times I feel that in this culture, poetry is fairly unseen. It's relegated outside of the common domain. I'm originally from Buffalo, New York, and Buffalo's newspaper is, I think, the only major newspaper in the US that since the 1970s has consistently run a poetry page that um, that takes unsolicited manuscripts, usually from local poets, mm -hmm. and so it really puts poetry out into the hands and before the eyes of regular people reading the, the newspaper, but often poetry is unseen, and within poetry, within the U.S., it does, from what I've experienced and observed, tend to be a somewhat insular community that is very, very US-centric. It's very much focused on US writers, or at least Anglophone, but really very US-focused. And to me, that's a problem. I mean, what is it only 3% of, of what is published in the US is something from another language? And it's totally out of proportion the other way. I mean, in Argentina, people read all sorts of things from the U.S. and they're translated into Spanish and yep. I mean I just have a bias because I just think that so much of the writing coming out of Latin America is better than what we have <laughs> here so um, my personal yep. bias but that's but yeah I mean that's really the mission of Eulalia is to bring voices yep. that have been unheard and unseen into more recognition. I would love it if you would read for a little bit. Um, how do you guys feel about that? Um, we can hear the book for about, you know, maybe however long you'd like to read, 10-ish minutes or so, and then um, I'm sure some of you have questions, so we'll open it up to some questions. Um, and at the end, Janine will be signing books, and we'll have a little book sale in the back for those of you. We'll have a student discount, I'll say. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I think we're eager to hear you read. Okay, then I'll stand up. I'd like to stand up to read. And before I do, so I just want to say thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy that you all came. And as far as I know, I don't think most of you are any under, you are not under any kind of compulsion to be here, which is amazing. I mean, where I teach, where I teach unless it's a requirement to get students to come out, it's really, really difficult. So I'm so happy that you came and because this book is really just one very long 
trees. You were fashioning paradise among the flower pots, and I was cultivating my hips out of air. Oh, goodness, I chose the weirdest poem to read. Sorry. I love that one. That's giant my favorite. Fat, <laughs> gi giant fat, like rainbow parts. Yes, that's what it says. <laughs> to cushion our falls, I had faith and walked away unknown with your feathered heart sleeping just above my own. As if paradise existed right under my chin, your heart with mine. That even didn't last. I knew it, but even so, I climbed the air that now cleaves me. To inhabit then imperfect terrain, to parkify it, constantly creating the patina that makes life possible. There, constantly life means to seal that patina, and there, where we fail to die, to watch die. Hey, maybe the symbol can't be civilized. There's no civilization that doesn't spread its hypocritical cover over all the death that holds up the crumbling fortress. Oh, Juana, you and your dream on top of mine, like a heart that beats, sibilant in the fault lines of habit. Hmm. Sisyphus and Daedalus, like hell and heaven, forge machinations like machines, machines like machinations. In the gated space of the binary, in the two-sided mind, there's a loin. Sun, wing, or lie, in time. But what thought brings is not enough. And in the end, thought only brings us hellish dreams, endless projects of the past. On earth and in heaven, always this lantern, earthly or solar rock. From some angle, there will be a star heavy and hollow in the constant hovering of matters already settled without remedy. There is no nature in the park. Dream and non-dream decorate the place. Heaven and earth build the horizon. And that shit is human. It belongs to no other animal. So heavy, hill and backpack ignite an invisible flight depth with no place. Moss on stone, like velvet at no cost, is precisely the cost. Its friends, bugs, and lichens contemplate the air coral, the same air. Life may be less or more exposed to loss. One's own loss might be a lesser loss. It may be complete full, a lack that inhabits, that wets the necessary stone. But no, neither moss nor stone escape the grief of the cultivated, nor wild coexistence with the bewitching poison of humans. Impossible kiss between lips and beak we achieved with head and chin. They sculpted love that never overcame the common, constant battles 
daily fighting for space and the space of time, to attain a space that is clean, without piss or excrement, with minimal crying and fewer punches, civilized, but to keep fighting, losing, winning, at our own expense or someone else's, as if that difference made any distinction. Indifference is soon forgetting, and then we're after our next kick, shod in dull hunger, the dangling carrot that when swallowed neither satisfies nor nourishes, but kicks the liver of difference. The tornado of disasters turns radiant what we let pass, what we choose to trample. That floor of ours rises in our bile, like change returned to us. Reflux of poison made at home, kicks like a child who holds up the blurry heart of forgetting and misses their mother. Reflections, barely echoes, die in the placenta of dreaming. Interior magma flows, silenced or repressed at our discretion. We believe this, or from the indolence we share. If in truth we swing in the same wind next to the same trees, how could we not think that they rise up by some miracle? Everything we do favors leaving them aside, like the already loved, once enjoyed, it dies far away in its own blood. It happens to the past, but it continues resounding in tandem. El eco del murmullo del parque es el trueno que hoy aturde, poderoso el poder no se puede mantener. La vida suena. Tintinea, errática, y sin sentido, hasta que acaba. No hay sostén, apenas hay goce. No hay nada en el oído del otro, aun cuando despierte. The echo of the heart's murmur is the thunder that now astounds. Powerful power can't be kept. Life resounds, rings out, erratic and senseless right up to the end. There's no support. There's hardly bliss. There is nothing in the ear of the other, even upon waking. Thank you. It's so nice to hear it in your voice. Um, I'd love to open this for questions. If, um, if anybody has questions about, oh, hi, Chloe. <laughs> I can see if anyone has questions about her work, about, um, about the book itself, about even the press and the project and the collaboration. Um, I'd love to open it up. Ah. I have a question about the word uh, parkify. I mean, it's obviously in English. Like, what, what was the word or words in the original language, and how did you come up with 
Parquisar, parquificar. It was something very similarly constructed. Parquisar. Parquisar, and it just meant to make something into a park. Yeah. And I just, I just came up with the word parkify, and she liked it and let me keep it. <laughs> I'm not the one. Who, no, you. Um, yeah, it, it's 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 not a word in English. Um, but it's an English construction, like it, if I to add that to a word. Yeah. Yeah, that, that exists in other languages. Right. Yeah, luckily sometimes those constructions are pos like similar sneaky word making things can happen in both languages. It's a really crucial concept in the book. It's, it's right at the center of it. So that yeah. word is important. I mean, like, uh, one thing I'll add with that is getting back to the concept of faithfulness in translation. I mean, I see translation as lost and found. There's so much that gets lost in translation, definitely, especially with sounds, but also things that get found. I was so excited when I found machines with machinations. In Spanish, it was uh, maquinas y mentiras, machines and lies, right? Yep. Yep. And I mean, that's just a synonym that worked well and played with sound. So it's sort of, in Spanish, she plays with sounds in certain ways. And in English, we can play with sounds in other ways. Yep. So, yeah. So I'll repeat the question. So that's a good question. Um, Irina asked that in poetry, repetition is a really um, prevalent um, device, and it's definitely in the book. Um, and what do you do when the word is repeated? Do you honor the repetition? Um, there's so many ways to go answer this. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, I just re repinned this, so hopefully you can all still hear me. So, I, would, I find that really an important point, because I was just thinking about this in terms of Homer's Odyssey. Hmm. How many of you have read the Odyssey, just for fun or in a class? Has anyone read the new translation, the Emily Wilson, Emily Wilson. translation? Yeah. I mean, maybe you read an earlier one, like I Richard Lattimore or one of those, but like one thing I noticed is that she does not go with exact repetitions. So in the Lattimore translation, Penelope is always circumspect Penelope, and mm -hmm. Odysseus is always son of Laertes and seed of Zeus, resourceful Odysseus, is how mm -hmm. the goddess Athena always addresses him. Um, there's always like, and then Dawn appeared again with her rosy fingers. And one thing I noticed is that in the Wilson translation, she doesn't, she keeps the meaning, but she doesn't repeat the exact phrases. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if I could ask her, and I don't read ancient Greek, so I'd want to look at the original, but I'd really want to ask her about that particular choice because previous translators always kept the phrases exactly the same. I think that Consistency is definitely a, a question when translating 
poetry and there are certain words that really stand out and they're, they're used a lot, multiple times. So definitely when there's a kind of rhythmic repetition in the Spanish and the words are very close together, then I would follow that in English. I wouldn't see a reason not to, most likely, unless there's a, a problem with meaning or something. But yeah. words that, I know we definitely look at that, like words that just appear and reappear throughout the original text. And then it's a question, oh, in English, should we always translate them the exact same way? Or should we, is it ever appropriate to use a synonym? And I think that really depends on the context. I agree, yeah. Um, in this work, I think it's, it goes into, again, what Janine described as the intimate act of reading and all the labor of knowing, of getting to the point where you know the book so well that you know when it's okay, I guess, to when you need to keep the word and when you don't. Mm -hmm. um, Chloe. I actually was, and that's part of the reason why uh, Michelle and the press approached me. I wasn't that familiar with Romina Freshi, but it's really funny, just by chance, or maybe it's not chance, I met her in Buenos Aires in 2013 when I was there for a totally different reason. And she had me to her home, and we had a really nice <coughs> chat. And I was very much interested in her, but I never thought that I would be translating her work. And, but since I'd heard of her, a few years later, another poet and translator called Alexi Salmeda approached me because she's working on an anthology of women writers from Argentina writing during the 1990s. She's focusing on that specific area. And she wanted to have Romina Freshi as part of her anthology. And I said, oh, I've met her. I know who she is. And she said, oh, do you want to translate her? And so I did. I started working on some of this material. And that particular book isn't out yet. She's still, um, Alexis is still working on it. But I, um, it's, it's, it'll be an anthology of all different writers from Argentina. But I chose, for, for that I was working on material from the very early part of her career. So she published this first book when she was really young, like 23, something like yeah. that. So it, and it has a kind of 23-year-old vibe to it. It's really loud and brash, and it's making fun of all different kinds of media, like media that were big in the 90s, right? So TV and movies and that sort of ad yeah. ads. And I'm still working on it. Like I put it aside, but I was really excited about it. And I have it about half finished. But I think that Alexis told Michelle that I'd done some work on that. And Michelle wanted to, and Roman, they wanted to translate this. So I said, sure, I'll try it out. And it's definitely different when you haven't chosen the text yourself. Like, I'll definitely say that. But I was really happy to do it. Another thing that was different for me 
working on this was that the author was, you know, is very much alive and well. The, the, the author I've most translated is deceased, so that's a totally different experience. <laughs> um, but this author is very much alive and well and a fluent English speaker, and she was very active in the translation process through multiple Skype conversations and answering my questions and reading drafts and responding to them. So that was what made this different as well. Maybe one more question. I'm curious about the relationship that you've created with Romina or any, that any translator creates with the, a living author. I'm used to teaching translated works for the author's dad, you know, and, but you have the author right there working with you. But to what extent is the faithfulness question at play when you, when you have the author looking at the work that you're doing of his or her original work? How does that, how does that relationship so some people have said that it's easier to translate an author who's dead. I don't think that's true, actually. So my very first experience of translating a, a dead poet, um, it was really like, a, it was like a mystery. It was like trying to solve a mystery and hunting for clues about her. And it was amazing because I got to talk to her living family members and friends and the community of people around her. And this particular poet, whose name is Marosa Di Giorgio, was known for being quite intimidating and wearing really crazy outfits. <laughs> and I mean, as a 22-year-old, when I started working on her, I think if I had met a person like this, I would have just run away. I would have been so scared, <laughs> especially because my Spanish was terrible at that time. I was just like, hola, me llamo Janine, soy de los Estados Unidos. I'm exaggerating, but not much. Like, that's really how I sounded, speaking Spanish. And I was in Uruguay, I went there on a Fulbright grant through the US government, which you should all consider applying for. It's, it's a life-changing opportunity as something to do right out of college. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was not confident. I'd studied Spanish, but I, I'd studied Spanish, gotten good grades in it, and then I go to Uruguay and go into a store which is small and you have to ask for what you want behind the counter. And I mean, I was scared to ask for a Coke because I didn't know <laughs> how to say it. So I mean, that was a different experience than now a lot of time has gone by. And I'm going to say something really, really cheesy, but in my experience, it's mostly been true. And that is, for me, the translation process, whether the person is alive or not, is. For me, it's very much about love and connection and developing some kind of some kind of bond with yeah. the person. You know, it, it, it depends. I mean, I wouldn't say that Romina and I have become friends just yet, um, you know, but she's been so nice to me. She really, she took a lot of time to go over this. and. At one point, she actually helped me on another translation project I'm doing, and I had some <laughs> yeah. questions, yeah. and I asked her, and That's she awesome. gave of her time, and yeah, you know, we have each other on social media yeah. and comment on each other's posts, so it's like, you know, that sort of level. Like, I mean, I'd like to see her again and get to spend time with her again, and obviously Argentina's very far away. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you know, I can imagine translating someone's work. It, I've had different experiences. In one case, 
Um, I actually translated a book of literary criticism. That author is very much alive and well. He wanted no part of it at all. He just did not speak to me, did not really want to answer questions. And it was, a, it was a similar scenario in that it was a case of a publisher had asked me to do it. And so in that case, no, I wasn't. I didn't really bond with, with the original author, but I was very happy when the work was done. He was satisfied with it, and that was good. But most of my experience thus far has been about connecting and building community. When I started working on Marosa di Giorgio, the first one, the, the deceased one, you know, I met all these people around her. And I just happened to meet Romina in another context, and now I worked with her on this. And everyone else that I've translated, there's always been some kind of friendship or connections or meaningful conversation that has come about. And for me, that's what it's all about. That's, that's more rewarding even than holding this book. Yeah. You Skyped and emailed and mm -hmm. yeah, it, and yeah. she was very present in the process. Very much so. And in a, in a good way. And yeah, we had some disagreements, sure, but it's funny because she is a, a, um, an English, a, a very fluent English speaker, but sometimes there are things that she was convinced that she knew that she didn't know. Mm -hmm. Like, remember the phrase, a steep premium? She just didn't believe that that was a phrase in English. She's like, what is that? I've never heard that. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, and there were a yeah. few things like that. But yeah, 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 yeah. But she's, yeah. I mean, for those of you in my small press class, this is a great example of how small presses create literary community, make, you know, relationships happen between translators and poets and poets and translators and editors. And there's a, a great deal of, you know, we've talked about how small presses have a, have a personal feel to them. Um, and I think this is a good example of what you're so. describing. Yeah. Um, Janine will still be available for questions. She's going to be at the back table. Please have some food and refreshments if you haven't already. Thank you all so much for being here, um, I can't tell you how meaningful it is that St. Vincent has created a space for us to be creative and to do this. Um, and so it feels very special to look out and see members of the community here um, as we launch this book. <laughs>